You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to our third roundtable on shared decision-making. All decisions, whether shared or individual, need to be based on the best evidence. So if we are to realise the vision of informed shared decision-making, we have to focus on providing clinicians and patients with timely, high-quality information. And to discuss what's needed and how far we are from providing this, I'm delighted to introduce our panel... Gerd Gigerenza, Director of the Max Planck Institute for Human Development. Hello, Gerd. Great to be here. We have Lisa Schwartz and Steve Wollishen, not one person but two, both of them professors at Dartmouth Medical School in the US, who together work on improving the quality of messaging, presenting health information to people. Hello, Lisa and Steve. Hello. We have Dave DeBronkert, who is known on the internet as ePatient Dave, and Dave in a moment will explain to us exactly why that is. We have Margaret McCartney, who's a GP and writer based in Glasgow. Hello, Margaret. Hi. Sue Zeebland, who is at the University of Oxford in the Department of Primary Care and works with Health Talk Online, which again will be described later. And we have Tessa Richards, who is an editor on the BMJ and brings with her to this discussion a perspective as a patient and the mother of a patient. Gerd Gigerenza, can I ask you to begin? Do doctors understand the evidence and and do medical journals present it clearly? No. (laughs) (laughs) So I've trained about 1,000 doctors in their continuing medical education. And my estimate is that maybe 80 to 90% of these doctors do not understand the relevant evidence in their own specialty. Now, one should not blame now the doctors because uh, in our health system, uh, to provide transparent information is not the rule. The doctors often do not read the medical journals and they often don't have the training to understand and evaluate the medical journals, so they may read brochures. And in many uh, areas, what you read in a brochure is not written um, in order to inform patients or doctors, but to make them do something, like participate in screening, increase participation rates. But misinformation already starts in part in the top medical journals. And I'm very happy to be here at the BMJ. (laughs) And uh, how is this being done so that patients or doctors are misled? And the point is not lying, just misleading. Here's one example. Assume there's a treatment which increases the chance of dying from one cancer by one in two in hundred and decreases the chance of uh, dying from a second cancer. That's the benefit from two to one in hundred. How it's presented is typically the following. So how it's presented is the following way. Uh, one would write that doing this treatment decreases the chance of dying from the second cancer by 50%. Although there is a, uh, a potential harm, but it's only one in hundred. We call this mismatched framing. You present the benefits in big numbers, called relative risks, and the harms in small numbers, called absolute risks. And this happens, according to studies, in the top medical journals in one out of every three 
uh, uh, articles where benefits and harms are both represented. And I think it's an ethical issue. issue. One cannot blame the pharmaceutical industry who funds these uh, papers, but the editors. And the editors should stand up for it and take responsibility and not allow uh, this type of misleading information. Thank you. Lisa and Steve, um, you are involved, I suppose, in educating editors, and you've come recently and given us a seminar on what we, how we should be doing better at the BMJ in terms of um, understanding the extent of the problem and how we can do better. What would you say to Gerd's example, and, and what do you feel the future is the future bright or rather bleak? I, I mean, I think the future is bright. I mean, I think that there are easy ways to do better once... Um, journals can provide more explicit guidance to authors because lots of articles are confusing. I mean, it's not so straightforward how to generate absolute risks that we can all understand. And I think that by paying more attention to this issue and making it for easier for authors to get it right, it will make it easier for editors to enforce those um, standards once they become more explicit. Steve? <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I think a lot of the journals, including the BMJ, have really good guidance for authors. And so, so part of the problem is enforcing the, the guidance. Um, but I think it's possible, and, I, and I'm very optimistic, that we'll have more um, transparent presentations of, of informa- information. And that will not only help doctors, but it will also help um, journalists who are writing about these um, articles. And that will help the, ultimately help patients and consumers. Dave DeBroncart, or e-patient, Dave, which you'll explain now. Tell us your response to what you've just heard about how the journals are failing, I suppose it's only fair to say, in large part to, to make things clear. I, th- I think it even is more than the journals. I think the journals are a reflection of the culture where, in my own experience, I've been looking at healthcare for a- about three years now. Uh, I came at it just as a cancer patient, which I'll say more about in a moment. Uh, what I've seen is that there's a pervasive assumption that somebody out there must be on top of whether we're doing things right. And it never occurs to any individual that when they see something that doesn't make sense, they should speak up. And that's true of physicians. It's true of policymakers. It's true of a lot of journalists. Uh, and that's why I think the work that the foundation is doing, including, for instance, supporting the work of Gary Schweitzer uh, at Health News Review, evaluating the quality of medical news reporting, is so important, just teaching people how to think more precisely. Uh, in my own case, I mean, I was diagnosed four years ago out of nowhere with stage four kidney cancer. I had no identifiable symptoms. And at diagnosis, my median survival time was 24 weeks. And let me tell you, this will focus the mind. You know, I cared very quickly. I went from caring not much about healthcare to caring a lot very rapidly. And, you know, it's interesting. I was saved by great physicians. Some people who talk about patient empowerment think of it in terms of overthrowing the establishment. I was saved by the establishment. Uh, And an interesting thing happened along the way. As soon as my diagnosis was confirmed, my primary physician prescribed a patient community to me, a community of other kidney cancer patients. And it's interesting, consider the quality of the information I got there. 
Within two hours of posting my first message on that list, I heard, kidney cancer is an uncommon disease. Get yourself to a specialist center who does a lot of cases. There is no cure. There's one treatment that usually doesn't work, but when it does, it about half the time, it acts like a cure. Uh, it's called high-dosage interleukin-2. So get yourself to some place that can do it. And uh, don't let them give you anything else first, because if you do, then you won't, you'll be less likely to respond. And by the way, here are the four doctors in your part of America who do it and their phone numbers. Now, how fabulous is that? And uh, so now, as it turns out, I had already gotten myself to a hospital, uh, a major academic medical center an hour from my home, because I had decided years earlier that I was going to be responsible for my care. And if I ever had found myself in big trouble, I wanted to be able to act quickly. So I was already at one of those four hospitals being connected with one of those doctors with that treatment on the horizon. What I found, at what I've since learned, is that three out of four patients who are medically qualified for that treatment never even hear that it exists. It's the only thing that can produce a cure. There was just recently a continuing education video that was published just within the last month where some learned physicians in this field said it usually doesn't produce a cure, so it's not much of an option. Well, I'll tell you, you talk to a bunch of patients who, or families who just found out their father is dying, tell them there's a 1 in 10 chance he could be cured in a few months, the whole perspective shifts. Let me ask Sue Zeebland's view on this, because, Sue, you're working with Health Talk Online, uh, which gathers a range of different views, and, and I think the impression that context is very important. Obviously, Dave's experience with, with a, a, a very serious, life-threatening um, and, and, and a disease which required very quick decision-making, but there are many other contexts in which information is used. There are, yes. Um, I've been working for several years with a group which publishes illness narratives collected as qualitative studies of people's experiences on a website called Health Talk Online. And something we've been doing recently, funded by the Department of Health here, is reanalyzing a lot of those interviews. We've got many thousands of them now, looking for people's descriptions of how they got involved in making decisions about their health. And I think I probably started... Um, with the view that those people who are either well or dealing with long-term conditions would probably be much more likely to be engaged and want to be engaged in making decisions about their health than those who are faced with a sudden shocking diagnosis where, you know, I guess you're normally hoping that the medical establishment will have one very clear answer to how they ought to treat you. And there probably is a general pattern along those lines, but we've been really surprised to discover that people who want to be very closely involved in decisions cover the range from those who are facing the last few weeks of their life, and why wouldn't they, through to people not really wanting to be involved in decisions and wanting a protectively paternalist approach when they're dealing with a long-term condition or even a pregnancy. So we've been really quite struck by how it's very individual and it not only varies by the condition, but it may vary um, by the, the, the person from time to time. And how, as a doctor or as a nurse confronted with that, might one understand what sort of approach would be best in any one patient? I think that one of the first things would have to be to acknowledge that there's uncertainty. If there isn't an acknowledgement of some uncertainty about treatment, then it's very hard to have a discussion about shared decisions. But then I think... 
it also largely comes down to communication and the, the quality and type of the relationship with the health professional. One of the things that we found in, in looking at our interviews is that there are some people who um, were unable to take part in decisions with one health professional, but then they went to see another one. So maybe their GP they found was, was you know, rather dismissive and didn't want to share decisions with them. But then they'd see a diabetes specialist nurse and they'd discover that, hey, yeah, they were actually really keen to get involved in, in decisions. And uh, the same would happen from one GP to another. And people you know, do tend to end up, hopefully, finding the health professionals with whom they can have the best kind of relationships. Margaret McCartney, as a GP in Glasgow, what, how do you respond to the, to the very wide range of needs that your patients may or may not be able to express? Yeah, I mean, in general practice, we're often lucky in that we often know a bit about our patients before they have to make a decision about their health care. And very often we have time to make that decision thereafter. It doesn't often have to be made that same day. Um, but it can be very difficult to access good information on which to base that information. Very often there are massive gaps in the evidence, which means that we're um, dealing with an uncertainty by applying an uncertainty to it. And it can be actually quite hard to, um, as a doctor, I, I, I do feel that as though I'm still responsible for a decision that my patient makes. I have to make sure they're given good information to do that. And if there isn't the information, it's very, very hard. Tessa, Richard... Your experience as a well-informed, evidence-informed doctor, but more recently as a patient and as the mother of a patient, I, I think you might want to say that often the patients aren't as empowered as, as we might believe they should be. Yes, I, I think that I think that's that's fair to say. I think it's wonderful to have a, a you know a grand vision of shared decision making and you know the patient as a equal expert in their care but so I think my experience as a patient and as a mother as a patient is more that obviously I'm taking a UK perspective here as the the patient is a disempowered supplicant fighting to get care from an inefficient system that isn't listening too hard or doesn't seem to be and where it is listening it doesn't seem capable of responding. Um, I think everyone working within it um, is there with goodwill but I think the whole system is structured to kind of mitigate against the opportunity for the patient to, to really put over what matters to them. And that was one of the, um, I think, the very key statements that hit home to me in the discussions at Salzburg was this idea of instead of being asked as a patient, what's the matter with you? How are you today? You know, how is the treatment going? Is what matters to you? And... I wonder whether the endless time that patients spend sitting in waiting rooms before they get to see the doctor couldn't be better spent. And I thought Muir's suggestion of getting them to do prep and homework is an absolutely splendid one. And I would love to be handed um, a piece of paper that said, um, what do you understand about your disease? Do you think the treatment you've had to date has made any difference? What are you worried about? Um, Share your concerns with us. Put them down. How do you think the doctor can help you to address these concerns? You know, where do we go from here? And I think that um, we should take that very seriously to get the patient, to encourage the patient not to read, um, you 
you know, the trashy magazines or last week's um, country life, but actually to get them to do some prep, which will really galvanise the doctor into understanding where that patient is coming from and what matters to them. I think another issue which, as a patient and as a mother of a patient, that um, matters to me and I think is important is this asymmetry of information between the doctor and the patient. Although it is good practice for consultants to send copies of letters which are sent to the GPs to the patients, I find this is often more honoured in the breach than the observance. Um, And I think this... You should not have, as I have had to do twice in the last week, request for a copy of a letter to be sent to you. If you don't actually understand your own condition, the investigations that have been ordered on your behalf, and you are not fed back the results of those investigations, how can you be an empowered, informed patient participating in decisions about your health? It's just not going to happen. It's still very difficult to get access to medical, your own medical records. If you request them, you'll very often be given um, you know, one letter and a couple of results slips. What you don't see is the thinking of, of your clinician in response to what you, what you came along to discuss with them or the sort of interaction between the two of you. It's, um, I still think the system is not as open and transparent as it should be, and I'd like to see that change. I think we all would. Dave, how does that experience that Tess has just reflected um, fit with what you experienced in the U.S.? Well, I like the term she used, participating. The, um, I, one of my activities is I'm a volunteer co-chair of the Society for Participatory Medicine, which is defined explicitly as where networked patients and the networking is important because when we can talk with each other, we can share information, tell each other what questions to ask. It's what I did in my kidney cancer patient community where networked patients shift from being mere passengers to being responsible drivers of their health. And it includes, I mean, you can't be a passive wimp of a patient and be participatory. It means that You have to do, well, there was a a physician a couple years ago who wrote a blog post where he said, physicians are coaches, patients are players. My physician tells me to do this, this, and this, but I'm the one who goes out on the court of life and either plays the game or doesn't. Uh, The the participatory medicine movement grew out of the e-patient group. Uh, The E stands for Empowered, Engaged, Equipped, Enabled. My primary physician, Dr. Danny Sands, was a friend of Tom Ferguson, MD, who published a number of papers in the BMJ about 10 years ago, uh, documenting how patients empowered and enabled by the information they could find on the Internet could create value. You know, Muir mentioned earlier the new industrial revolution. Ferguson published uh, a pair of triangle diagrams where he talked about... uh, industrial age medicine and information age medicine. In the industrial revolution, the ability to create value belonged to people who owned the means of production, which was a factory. Uh, And similarly in healthcare, the ability to create value depends on information. And when that information started getting into patients' hands with the internet, it turned the triangle upside down and it enabled things like these self-help groups. Uh, I want to toss in something that 
continues that something I learned in Salzburg that just blew my mind. You know, we talk about practice variation and the discovery, for instance, that in Jack Wenberg's own neighborhood uh, in Vermont, in New England, if he had lived a half a mile away, his kids would have been four times more likely to have their tonsils taken out uh, for no reason other than just individual physician superstition, superstition, preferences, discussions. And then we learned, uh, apparently, Wenberg and his people found some 20 years later, they came across a paper that was published about tonsillectomies in the United Kingdom uh, in 1938, of all things. And the thing that nobody wants to talk about and that patients and families really need to understand is that every time you cut somebody open or put chemicals, potent biological chemicals in them, there is a risk. And what this paper reported, in addition to uh, the variation, which, of course, same as in the U.S. when it was discovered, it was, well, our patients are sicker or our patients are different. All the research showed that's not the case. In the, in the year before this paper was published, there were, in the U.K., 60 deaths from tonsillitis, but there were over 500 deaths from complications of tonsillectomies. People need to understand that taking the choice to undergo a treatment carries risks the same as the, the choice not to. So, Gerd Gigarenza, why are we so bad as uh, clinicians or as patients at, at understanding and communicating risk? Well, there's one simple reason. Uh, we teach our children the mathematics of certainty, but not of uncertainty. We have not realized that uh, the, 20th, the 21st century will produce more and more risk, more and more technologies that entail other risks, and we should prepare the next, genera the next generation to deal reasonably with risks. And that could be done by starting in first grade in a playful way with children. And there are some programs that we have uh, developed, and we can teach uh, children in the, maybe in the fourth, fifth grade huh, to understand how to make inferences from data that many doctors can't do. It's all possible. And, and just knowing, understanding evidence is one thing, but there is also another important thing that one can teach children to dare to know to dare to ask questions, not just to uh, ask, uh, what should I do, but why should I do what? And this kind of uh, psychology here of understanding how to live with an uncertain world is something very important for shaping the personality of a future generation that can really uh, be informed citizens in a modern de technological democracy. Is there a sense in which clinicians, doctors are unwilling to discuss risk because of the general kind of bias towards optimism and, and wanting to give the good news that these are issues that people find hard to discuss. Sue Zeblen, do you think that that may be an issue? Your, do your experiences with the patients who talk to you suggest that? I think that I think that uncertainty is very difficult to deal with in the consultation. And you know, while I absolutely respect everything that um, Gerd Gemmenzer is saying, I think 
that when you are when you are told that you've got a serious illness, you don't actually want to hear that there's any uncertainty about treatment. What you want to hear is that there is, you know, one absolutely recommended treatment that all doctors agree is the best thing for you. And when we interview people, it's amazing how often with very, very different health conditions, people say, and do you know what? It was extraordinary. I was given my diagnosis and it seems that doctors don't seem to know the best way to treat it. And that, of course, we would recognise covers a remarkably wide range of health experiences. So people... So I think sometimes what happens in the consultation, and the consultation is, of course, fascinating because it's a unique environment for misunderstandings and miscommunications, is that some kind of unhealthy collusion goes on where people want to be reassured that this is the the best approach and the doctor falls into trying to reassure and also with a belief that if... If they communicate the uncertainty, their patient may also do worse as a result. So I think it's a really complicated and difficult area. Patients often struggle to make sense of what's going on when they're asked to make a decision about what treatment they would like, especially when they're faced with a serious diagnosis. And sometimes they conclude that the doctor must be concerned about litigation. One of the things that underlines this conclusion that they draw is that People sometimes report to us that they've been asked to make a choice. They go away, they make the decision about what kind of treatment they want. They report that to the clinical team. And when they say, yes, I've decided I'll have the hysterectomy to go with the treatment for ovarian cancer, the whole medical team fall back with a sigh of relief that they've made the right decision. The patient then says, well, if they knew what the right decision was all along, why were they asking me to make it? And, and of course, there's, there's research showing that if... If you make, if as a patient you make the decision that your your team do not wish you to make, then they will find ways of trying to persuade you to do what they would like you to do. Um, and there's very nice observational studies in clinics showing the various things that doctors do to help you to change your mind to make the decision they wanted you to make in the first place. <gasps> what am I saying? It's complicated. Steve Wollishan, uh, one of the things that you and Lisa Schwartz have been doing is is communicating with journalists, both to try to improve how they portray risk and benefit. Uh, but I suppose, based on what Susie Blint has just said, there's also a business of trying to just explain to journalists and therefore to the people who read them that degree of complexity and the, the, the role of uncertainty in healthcare. Is that part of what you're trying to do? <clears throat> yes, definitely. I mean, it's not just about getting people the numbers. It's about fostering a sense of healthy skepticism to encourage people to ask questions, you know, why should I believe what you're telling me? You know, having some sense that um, thing, there is complexity, there is un- uncertainty. But um, <clears throat> the other thing I think that's really important, though, is to, um, to make things a little less daunting is that we can draw on skills that people have. I mean, people, doctors, journalists, jet editors, people are pretty smart. <laughs> and um, they they do things all the time in their daily lives, using numbers, manipulating numbers, no different than the kinds of numbers we're talking about when we're, when we're thinking about health risk. So, for example, we can make things complicated. We can talk about relative risk reductions and odds ratios and number needed and all this stuff. We could talk about sales or savings, um, you know, or, um, things that people are, are familiar with and, and that they're able to deal with all the time. So one of the things that we try to do with patients and with journalists and with other communicators is just to try to um, encourage people to use transparent numbers and to try to um, use analogies to things that people are familiar with. 
Are there areas in healthcare where shared decision-making is most important? Is there a sort of hierarchy of need for implementation, given the hugeness of the challenge we face? Uh, do we feel that, obviously, chronic conditions would be one area? Is that the right place we should start with this, Dave? Oh, I'd, I'd actually like to put a little spin on your question because uh, I can't really address it at the individual tactical level like that, but at the cultural level, we really need to shift the thinking. Uh, and it's as much of an issue for the consumers, the patients, as it is for the clinicians. Uh, one example of this, you know, I've been involved in industry before I get interested in healthcare. I've gotten, gotten involved in how industries turn upside down or inside out. Uh, for instance, I was in the typesetting machine industry when desktop publishing came along. And so I've been wondering what will happen in our culture that will cause the culture of receiving care to shift. And I suspect it's going to be what I've come to call the mama lion, right? The, the mother who is caring for a child and who will stop at nothing to ask, wait a minute, what else could this be? What other treatment options are there? And so on. Because if we can shift... Uh, who, uh, if we can shift to having that kind of thinking and realize it can also apply to ourselves as patients, uh, that will change the culture. In fact, one friend who's a, a woman named Kelly Young, she is on the internet as RA, rheumatoid arthritis, RA warrior. She's a very soft-spoken woman, but she learned, she realized that she could interact with her physician more effectively if she didn't use her patient voice, but her mother of a patient voice. And that she is involved in every decision now. Tessa, Richard. Um, I rather like your idea of a, of, of a mama lion. I find I'm a much better advocate for my, um, for my son than I am for, for myself. Um, and um, I think it's, it's good to draw attention to the expertise within the patient groups and the patient community. And certainly I found that they have had a whole lot of answers that I haven't been able to get from the health professionals. But I guess there's one thing that concerns me, and maybe, Margaret, this is something you could um, address, is that as a patient, it can be quite frightening now at the degree to which um, there is a lack of continuity of care. Care is fragmented. Now, it may be fragmented because you have, as I have, a complex condition which requires you seeing, you know, People who are experts in hypertension, in renal medicine, transplants, surgeons, oncologists, radiotherapists, but you do rotate between a, a lot of different specialties. And that, I think, makes the idea of that really challenges the shared decision making and understanding what matters to patients because you're being bounced around a system. And even within um, uh, with a relatively straightforward disease, a, a chronic condition, you may be meeting again, a lot of different health professionals in different settings, and and how can the GP help pull all these disparate threads together and feel that the patient has somebody that they can communicate with? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... And it's, you can share the burden of decisions yeah, with. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely very challenging, and what can be extra mm. challenging is the fact that you don't always have up-to-date notes, particularly for people who are being seen frequently. And so it's incredibly useful if you have a patient who's able to give a good account of what's happened. But the problem is that I think if you put too much responsibility in the patient, that's a bit unfair. You know, why should the patient have to mop up the deficiencies within the NHS? And the other problem, again, is that if you have a patient who's maybe less able 
to speak for themselves who doesn't have someone to go along with them for an appointment, why on earth should they be disadvantaged even more? So in many ways, although kind of you know patient impairment, you know how could you disagree with it? Actually, when you look at the end results and if you look for the harms that are present, there definitely are harms present there. I don't see why we can't all have memory sticks that we could choose who to give our medical records to and we could remain in complete control of them, decide who gets to see what and keep an up-to-date track of what goes on at all times. Um, you know, there are s- small things that would be very cost-effective, far better than connecting for health, which has just been a big joke, really. But um, am I allowed to say that? You're, you're allowed to say that. I was just going to give a quick ask for a show of hands. Anyone here who thinks patients should have their own records in their own hands? On a memory stick. A unanimous vote from all in this room. But the, the only thing I would say, though, is that I think you can't just give that to patients and that's the end of it. You have to prepare to sit down with people and explain stuff. Yeah. You have to remember that you've got 80 years' worth sometimes of stuff there. I can't read the copper plate handwriting, never mind anything else. So you can't just dump this all on patients and say, look, you sort it out. That's, that's again, unfair. Um, but equally, I don't think it's fair either to expect that everything that's written in medical notes is for the patients because they are shared records. Some of that is quite rightly medical notation or medical notes meant to help expect expedite and make things clear to whatever doctors are involved absolutely it should be explicable to patients but I think part of shared is literally shared you know decision making the doctor I think you know has got a bit of say in what goes on there too. Can I just ask if you like to see a vision where we have a shared record um, as I believe they have in Kaiser Permanente where patients can communicate you know, by email with doctors online, they can update records, they can put in information, and you can have a, a virtual conversation rather than everything have to be done by booking an appointment and you have a week to, you know, is that, yeah. is that a way forward? Certainly. I mean, there's sometimes we do um, telephone consultation. We find emails are for logistical reasons because some I'm not I'm part-time, you know, and, and I'm always worried about stuff like that. But we do do telephone consultations, things like that, and we do ask our patients to update by paper form. But, I mean, it could, all, I mean, it could always be better. You know, we would like it to be better, you know. But um, I, I think we, we have an openness, you know, about it, and we're happy. And, and when I consult with a patient, I have the computer screen with the notes turned around so we can both look at it at the same time and when we're talking about stuff from the hospital we'll both go through it together and I'll be trying to work out what's going on in my patient and we're doing it at the same time you know so that you know that's as good as I can get it just now but good gigarenza yeah I think it's very important to explain patients and empower them but I would like to go back on the issue of certainty and I think I have heard here that one should provide patients certainty because they long for it. I disagree. Unless the person is a child or mentally disabled, I think the step we have to go with patients is to make them competent to live with uncertainty and to explain them where they are. Because otherwise, we are fall back in the paternalism that we complain, that we know it better, and we create an illusion of certainty to patients. And this is one of the greatest danger. And we are doing this in other areas as well. So many of us go to the financial advisor and get something even proposed. And then the question is, is it certain? That's the wrong question. But as long as we put this question, then we will never be a mature decision maker. Of course, I, I think... 
I think that when I said that often when patients go to see the doctor, what they want to hear is that it's absolutely clear that there is a, an effective treatment. I'm not saying that therefore we have to pretend there is an effective treatment, but it's a way of understanding why there is so often a misunderstanding in the consultation because what the patient wants to hear, it isn't possible to hear, but then the doctor has to find a way of explaining that there isn't, there isn't certainty. And it, I think it's one of the reasons why consultations often go awry. Um, I'm not saying that we need to pretend it's there when it isn't. On that note, we must come to a close. There's clearly a long way to go before we have proper informed shared decision making, but we have many good initiatives underway and I'm very grateful to those who've contributed to this roundtable. Gerd Gigarenza, Lisa Schwartz, Steve Wallison, Dave Bronkart, Margaret McCartney, Tessa Richardson, Sue Zeebland. Thank you all very much. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.